Alrighty, let's pray and we'll start. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you'll bless our time as we look into it. Thank you for all the lessons we've learned from the book of Hebrews. I just pray that each one of us will live our life in a way that will please you and all that we do. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, Hebrews chapter 10 we're on tonight. So number one in your notes, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai and written in Exodus through Deuteronomy especially in the book of Leviticus, was a picture of the future of the good things to come. So the whole uh, Old Testament, especially uh, the book of Leviticus, with all the sacrifices and the tabernacle and uh, the various uh, furnishings in the tabernacle were all pictures or illustrations of the future. And so clear into the millennial kingdom, they were a picture. Uh, Verse 1, the law, since it has only a shadow So it was uh, like a shadow of a person. You can see the shape, but no detail. And so the Old Testament sacrifices of the temple all were like a shadow of the good things to come. Not the very form of things. uh, And they can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And so uh, sometimes people will ask me, well, if we don't do that uh, book Leviticus stuff anymore all those sheep and the bulls and the various ceremonies if we don't practice all of those things why then should we read it and uh, the reason is is because it's an illustration of the future Uh, uh, you won't be able to understand present uh, and present in the sense of the epistles uh, revelations even without understanding the old testament because everything is built successfully successful success layer upon layer and uh, number two, the law was incomplete and could not deal with our sins. And so it was a reminder of sins and uh, it postponed the, inevit- uh, the uh, payment of sins that Jesus was going to do. It just kind of rolled everything forward with each sacrifice until Jesus came. Hebrews 10 again, uh, for the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So uh, the book of Hebrews is to remind you, the writer uh, this uh, is convincing those who had been Jews and converted to Christianity not to go back to the old way of doing things. And so he's continually reminding them that the old system didn't work very well. Number three, once again, the author of Hebrews says the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. And he says this about 11 times in the book of Hebrews. The old covenant is uh, obsolete. It's in the past. It's no longer our standard for living Hebrews uh, 10, 5 through 9, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Speaking of Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, takes away the first covenant in order to establish the second, the second covenant. 
Number four, the Old Covenant required the same sacrifices over and over and over and over. As you read the book of Leviticus, you can see that. But under the New Covenant, Jesus died once for sins. And so it, he took care of it on the cross. No longer is there a requirement for uh, sacrifices to be made because he took care of it once for all. Verse 11, every priest stands daily, every single day, 365 days a year, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, be, but he ha having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he, Jesus, offered one sacrifice in his own life on the cross for all sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And so in this chapter alone, he makes the point of saying one offering, one offering, one offering seven different times, as opposed to offerings every day, 365 days a year, over and over and over again. And even then, the sins are not forgiven. No one is perfected. No one is made holy or sanctified. Number five, the old covenant animal sacrifices changed nothing. That is, the people's character was not changed. But Jesus' death has the power to change us from the inside out forever. And so the old covenant was um, rules, regulations, procedures, but nothing changed on the inside. Didn't change us as people in our character. But Jesus, when he dies and when we become believers, uh, the power of the Spirit working in us changes us. Verse 10 through 14, we have been sanctified. Sanctified means to be made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Number six, with a holy, uh, just God, forgiveness is more than simply saying no big deal. And th there's an awful lot of individuals that tend to think that forgiveness is simply a winking at sin and that God's God and he can do anything he wants and so he can just sort of wave his hand and sin is gone and it's not that big a deal. But because God is totally and completely holy, he is also completely just uh, sin has to be taken care of. It has to be paid for. Otherwise, God would be uh, acting contrary to his own nature, character of being holy and just. So forgiveness is more than simply saying no big deal. It's illegal. It, it is legally having sin paid for. Animal sacrifices could not pay for sin. Only the death and blood of Jesus because he was sinless man and holy God. So all the animal sacrifice did, again, was roll it forward the sins of the people before the cross until Jesus came and died on the cross. And then he paid for the sins of all those that had lived before him and after. Verse 15 through 18, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so he declares that because of Jesus' death on the cross, there's no more sacrifices. 
because sin has been taken care of for all time. Number seven, the Holy of Holies was where the high priest went to meet God, and only the high priest could enter. If anyone else dared to enter, they would die. I've never watched it, but my son-in-law watches uh, the most dangerous jobs or uh, something like that, uh, fishing, firefighting, logging, various jobs that are really dangerous. Probably the most dangerous job that has ever existed is being a priest because if you did it wrong, even a little bit, uh, you instantly died. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So he says we can enter the holy place, each of us now, but back before the death of Christ, only the high priest could. And, and Hebrews 4, 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, again, with confidence, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And uh, chapter 9, verse 7, But into the second only the high priest enters once a year. Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. In the Leviticus 16.2, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. He will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Numbers 4, But do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his son shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. And so uh, Hebrews four times says we can enter into the holy place with confidence. Uh, not this holy place, but the one that is in heaven uh, through the blood of Christ. Eight, most believers don't understand the amazing privilege we have been given to pray to God the Father through Jesus our Savior and High Priest. When you compare the new covenant with the old covenant, the access that we have to God uh, through the blood of Christ as opposed to the old covenant, uh, when we see the confidence that we have to enter the throne of grace compared to the old one, uh, there is an amazing difference and very, very few believers today come close to grasping what a great blessing that is for us. Um, number nine, some things that will help us to have a private prayer time with some level of formality to it and uh, if we were to read through the book of Leviticus and say okay what lessons can we get from the book of Leviticus well one of the things you ought to get from it is that God is a God who likes formality um, he likes things done in an orderly way his creation illustrates that when you look at everything around us and the way that it functions whether it's the sun coming up uh, or the seasons of the year, God does things in a very orderly way. The book of Leviticus, when it comes to having a relationship with him, is very, very orderly. You do it just exactly this way with no deviation from it. And so though we're not in the Old Covenant and we don't have to do things like they did in the book of Leviticus, there uh, still ought to be in our thinking a sense of God's holiness and 
uh, awesomeness where we would have a relationship with him that would have a level of honor towards him uh, rather than simply uh, uh, casualness or complacency. And so one of the things that I do, I try to do is have a, uh, some level of formality or uh, honoring God uh, as God by the uh, way I pray. And so um, I have a official place, sort of like the Holy of Holies, where I pray. In fact, I have several official places. If you go into my office, I got some brand new furniture. You'll be quite impressed with my new chairs that I got. And uh, ladies would go into my office and say, Pastor, do you need to upgrade your office? It sort of looks like a farmer lives in here. And uh, so I got four uh, chairs, but over in the corner, there's a kneeling bench uh, that I had built a number of years ago as a place where I pray. And I also uh, got, uh, bought a prayer shawl when I was in Israel, just draping over it uh, as, again, making it sort of a, an official place where I pray. I try to pray on that kneeling bench about 15 minutes every day I'm in my office. And then at home, I have a, a new um, closet, as it were. I built a, uh, I think I told you this already, I built a uh, sauna just a little one. It's only about four feet square, made out of cedar with a little heater in it and it's got rocks in it. And I can put water on it and it's got a bench in it and it's got a little light and uh, it's very well insulated and I go in there every day and sit and pray. Uh, if I don't want to do the sauna thing, I can just turn it up a little bit so that it's warm if it's cold out. But uh, it's my uh, holy place, as it were, my prayer closet. And so I spend, I try to spend an hour a day in there uh, praying for everybody in the church, all my kids, my grandkids, and uh, my various goals. And so um, we tend to th take advantage of the fact that we can pray to God anytime that we want. In fact, we ought to uh, pray without ceasing. But I just really believe that we ought to have a, a sort of an official, uh, formal time with God, even if it's 15 minutes a day, where we have a place we have a time, we have a prayer journal, and there's a level of organization to it. And, uh, and rather than just being uh, casual or whenever. And so whenever I begin praying, I always begin with my Heavenly Father. And uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, uh, basically is what this means, my Heavenly Father. And then when I'm finished, I pray, I pray this prayer as a committed disciple of Jesus, which is uh, when he said, uh, when you pray and ask in his name, uh, that's what it means, that we pray in his name means we have the power of eternity, as it were, we are his disciple, and his disciples have been given authority from him, and uh, he intercedes for us. And so I begin with my heavenly Father, I pray uh, through uh, a list of things I have in my prayer journal, and when I'm finished, then I pr say, I pray, I pray this prayer as a committed disciple of Jesus. The primary purpose of the high priest praying was his sins and the sins of the people. So that's the first thing I deal with when I start my official prayer time, is I confess all known sin to God, and uh, uh, I usually will quote out loud 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I claim that as a promise, and I confess all known sin to God and experience his uh, forgiveness. And then I thank him for the
for the privilege of prayer. I thank him for his blessings. I thank, you, I thank him for all that he's done for me. I usually spend at least 10 minutes thanking him for my kids, my health, my church, uh, anything I've experienced lately. I write some of my prayers. I have a prayer journal, as it were, and so I write them and date them, and about once a week I go back, about a month, and then we'll just read prayers that I wrote earlier and repray those. One of the things that I am a really, really firm believer in that very, 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 very few people do is keep a log of the praying. That is, when you begin to pray, to write down the day, the time, and then when you finish, to write down the time and keep track of the amount of time that you pray. And so that you know at the end of any given week, um, the amount of time you've spent in prayer. Now, obviously, that's not going to be the time you pr- uh, spend praying while you're driving to work or uh, other praying that you do on the move. I'm talking now about this official Leviticus kind of organized relationship with God where you give him some time where you begin, my heavenly father, and you confess known sin, you thank him, And you end with, I pray this as a committed disciple of Jesus. So I write down when I start, I write down when I finish. And so I have a running log of the amount of time I've spent praying. The last two points assume a prayer journal. In other words, if you're going to write prayers, if you're going to keep a log, all of that would assume that you've got something that you do that in. So mine's in my iPad now. I used to have a, a, a paper one but I do that in my iPad now because God desires our time so much our prayer life is a huge factor in the success of every area of life so we've talked about this before but if you look up all the uh, references to bless blessed blessing how blessed you'll see that God's blessings are always conditional in other words, he say, you do this and I will do this. And when you look all those blessings up, uh, sort of the sum total or the common denominator in those blessings is our relationship with him, uh, our seeking him, um, our fear of him, our time we spend with him. And, uh, and so if you look at the blessings, there's some really cool ones. One of my favorites is those who fear the Lord will know the deep things of God, uh, the secrets of God. Uh, Another is those who fear the Lord, the angels of God will camp around them. And uh, one of my favorites now uh, always has been is those who seek the Lord, uh, his children will be like olive plants around his table. Obviously, that's a symbol of uh, prosperity and success. And so... uh, these blessings that God gives, prayer is almost uh, in all of them a common denominator in the sense that it's an act of seeking, it's an act of drawing near, it's an act of faith, and it is certainly uh, a choosing to spend time with God. And so when we choose to spend time with Him, that's what He wants is our time, our fellowship, and then what He gives us in return is blessing in every area of life. Volume of time is a major principle. 
in my seminar, as I have taught this over the years to various pastors and churches, I'll get some that will give me some pushback on this one. Uh, well, you know, I don't know why we have to make such a big deal out of time. And so I'll ask the question. So if you pray 60 seconds a day, that's it. Is that, uh, is that okay? And I get the answer back, no. Uh, no, I don't think 60 seconds a day is okay. So you do agree with me. The thing we don't agree on is the upper limit. You're okay with doing more than 60 seconds, but you don't particularly like the idea of doing an hour a day. So somewhere in between there, uh, you'd be all right uh, with it. And so I'm just of the opinion that uh, more is better because God wants our time and he promises to bless. And I like blessing and I have not yet got to the point where I've got too much in my life. I'd like some more. And uh, so I'm going to give him as much time as I can squeeze into my schedule. Our corporate prayer time is the foundation of our private prayer life. So God made us a part of the body of Christ, the church. And we don't function successfully on our own by ourselves, independent of our church family. It's like a hand being cut off from the physical body. And so corporate prayer is a major, major key ingredient in our prayer life. Our private prayer life will rise and fall on the faithfulness of our corporate prayer life. Very few Christians receive even a fraction of the power and blessing from God that is available to them because of their haphazard and anemic prayer life. We'll start out with the beginning of that one so you can get all the blanks in. Very few Christians receive even a fraction of the power and blessing from God that is available to them. because of their haphazard and anemic prayer life. I'm not sure that any other uh, spiritual discipline mentioned in the Bible uh, that has a blessing attached to it is as important uh, as our prayer life is. And, uh, but it's the one that most people will struggle with the most. And I think the reason for it is because of the fact that the devil does not want us to pray. And so the moment we begin to pursue prayer with any level of uh, faithfulness and sacrifice, we're going to get all kinds of spiritual warfare resistance from the evil one. And so we, we don't normally are able to push back past that. So moving on to Hebrews chapter uh, 10, uh, verse 23, I'll read this, the whole last section here before we jump into it in parts. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's a fairly strong statement. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, to be faithful means to not waver. Uh, God doesn't waver. He keeps his promise and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near, uh, I would assume that's the day that Jesus comes and takes us to heaven. The day that uh, we're done with this life, as it were. For if we go on sinning willfully, this is a really important passage right here for those who uh, 
take advantage of grace and uh, feel like they can do just about anything they want because after all, uh, we're saved by grace, not by works. So if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, receiving the knowledge of the truth, I would consider that to be a statement that we became, uh, we heard the gospel and everything we needed to become a believer. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And uh, that, that probably ranks right up there in the, one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Insult the Spirit of grace. That's what we do when we say, I'm saved by grace so I can live any way I want. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, that's a, a spooky passage right there. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So they had, uh, were drifting away much of it because of the persecution they went through, uh, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. Don't walk away from Jesus, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised for yet in a very little while he was coming will come. It will not delay. My righteous one shall, not, uh, shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So you'll recognize uh, uh, some of these as the um, sermon I preached on Easter Sunday. I didn't do the whole one because it was a 10-minute sermon. At least it was supposed to be. I guess it went 17 for those who were keeping track. But uh, this was pretty much this passage right here. Number one, many people think they're Christians headed to heaven that aren't. Instead, they're headed for hell and they don't know it. I've thought about what that would feel like. uh, To live life thinking that you're headed for heaven and then get to the end of your life and stand before Jesus in this verse in Matthew 7 is spoken. Many will say to me on that day, that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Depart from me. And uh, as I've, I, I golf a little bit with guys in the church that are good golfers. And so, uh, they're gracious with me. They give me, uh, I call them do-overs. They call them mulligans. Uh, but they'll say, ah, do that one again. And uh, the only problem with me doing it again is I just lose another ball. But, uh, but it does improve my score a little bit. But uh, there won't be any of those there at Matthew 7 at, uh, when we stand before Jesus at the end of our life. It'd be nice if we could have a second chance and if he could send us back and say, let's see if you can get it right this time. Now that you've kind of got some insight, 
but that isn't going to happen. Number two, everybody who thinks they are a Christian should check out their faith regularly. So one of the things that often young people, when I say young people, I'm talking about uh, those who are somewhere between 16 and 25 uh, will uh, come and talk to me about things. And if they're struggling with a sin habit and they're trying and they struggle with it, one of the things they will ask me is, sometimes I wonder if I'm saved. And uh, so I uh, suggest, well, maybe you're not. So let's get saved right now. And uh, just to make sure. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, making sure, especially if it doesn't look like you've kind of got this sin thing taken care of. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it does mean there's going to be growing taking place. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And so that's a fairly strong admonition that we uh, would do. The first test, number three, is ask the question, do I have a, uh, a growing hunger for a changed life? And am I in pursuit of righteousness? Matthew 5, Jesus said, He who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. I don't think that's in the notes, Dwayne, just off my head. <laughs> so it isn't the fact that we sin that's the problem, it's the fact that it doesn't matter to us when we do. 1 John 2 and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus pays the price of our sin, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Every individual from Adam to the last person, he paid all of their sins. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And again, that's not saying that we're going to be perfect. But it does mean that there's a grieving over our sin and a constant pursuit, over, uh, a pursuit for holiness and righteousness in our life. Second test is, am I running the race that God has set before me with endurance? Am I finishing? Hebrews 12, this is the key. These three verses are probably the, the key verses, uh, the pivotal verses, the descriptive verses of the whole book of Hebrews. If you want to know what Hebrews is about, these three verses describe it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, run with endurance, the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you, again, he's writing to those who are drifting away, falling away, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So number five is uh, kind of a positional statement. That is, uh, this is what I believe.
kind of a statement. Once we are genuinely saved, we can't lose our salvation, but if we aren't really saved, we will fall away. I led a fellow to uh, Christ in my office a number of years ago, and I usually do that in a with a fair amount of detail. I go through a lot of verses and, uh, and then I pray a fairly complete prayer that has the gospel in it. We'll have that at the end of these notes. And then when he has prayed that with me, I'll ask this question. Okay, suppose you die tonight and stand before God. Why should I let you into my heaven? And so I took 20 minutes going through the gospel, explaining it in detail, all the verses, and he prayed that prayer. Uh, with, and in fact, he even got down on his knees and prayed it. And so when he finished, I said, so, just for kicks, let me ask the question again. And I asked that question, and he said, when, uh, after 20 minutes of explanation, well, I guess I'd say that I've been a pretty good person. I've tried, and I, I, I thought w- I, at first he was, was joking me. I thought he's just pulling my chain here, but then... I thought, I don't think he is. I think he's sincere. So I went back and I went through everything I'd gone through already once again with a little bit more clarity to it and a few more verses. And so we went through the prayer and he prayed a second time. And uh, I asked at the end of that prayer, suppose you died right now, this very second, and stood before God and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? He said, well, I've been religious I've gone to church. I've tried hard. So I said, okay, let's do this one more time. So I went through it even in more detail with more verses and prayed the prayer again. And this time, uh, when I asked the question, he says, I got it. When he says to me, why should I let you into my heaven? I will say, because I have trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I've prayed and received him, received the gift that he gave me, And he died for my sins, and he is Lord of my life. And I said, right on. So, you know, a whole lot of people would just assumed after that first time that he's in. He prayed the prayer. But in fact, he wasn't in. Um, So we, we tend to think that people are Christians because they raised their hand, because they signed a card, because they walked an aisle, because they prayed a prayer. But the fact is, there's an awful lot of blindness in confusion inside of the average individual's mind and heart. And when they first hear the gospel, it doesn't make a lot of sense to them and they don't really get it. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, to what we have heard, so that we don't drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In chapter 3, verse 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Same chapter, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away, falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Chapter 4, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. I wasn't united in faith, it didn't take. Hebrews chapter 6, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And so John says, if they fell away, they weren't believers. Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise, will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Revelations 2, 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until, until death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful until death that will give you the crown of life. 2 Timothy 4, 7. This is Paul's statement at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have finished the course. I crossed the finish line. Mark 4, 17. They have no firm, firm root in themselves, but, only are, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. 1 Timothy 4, 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Number six, if you start to drift away from the Lord or get lukewarm, don't assume it's just summer slump. Uh, it can be. We all go through the ups and downs. But recommit your life to Him as your Savior and Lord. The problem is... Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick, who can understand it? So we don't even know our own heart. Number seven, maintain a holy fear that you may be deceived, that you might not really be saved and headed for heaven. Hebrews 4, therefore, let us fear, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. It was not united by faith in those who heard. So the admonition, let us fear. Number eight, a major culprit of false believers is an over-simplistic salvation invitation and prayer of salvation. In my, one of my, in my opinion, one of the worst is ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, there's no aspect of the gospel in that uh, invitation. So here's the prayer, and we have this on, uh, I meant to bring some little ca uh, cards the size of a uh, credit card. Uh, they're, they're a trifold one, but you can keep it in your wallet to use it if you lead someone to Christ. And so... Dear Lord, I confess to you that I'm a sinner, incapable of being good enough to earn my own way into heaven. 
I trust you right now for my salvation into heaven and my adoption as your child into your family. I believe that you are God equal with the Father. I believe that you emptied yourself of all that you were as God and that you left heaven and became exactly like me in every way. I believe that you never sinned, not even a little one, not even in thought or attitude. I believe that you were nailed to a cross and while you hung there, God the Father took all of my sins, past, present, and future, put them on you, looked at you as if you actually committed the sins that I committed, punished you for my sins, and that because you had become my sin, God the Father turned his back on you, rejected you. I believe that you felt the guilt of my sin, that you felt the shame of my sin. I believe that you physically died on the cross, that you were buried, that you spent three days in hell being tormented for my sins. I believe that three days later you rose from the dead and that you are alive today, seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. I declare you to be Lord of my life. I will obey you and do whatever you ask. I will follow you and serve you all the days of my life. And uh, so it's got the total gospel in it in the sense of Jesus is God. He became flesh. He lived a sinless life. He took my sins upon himself. Um, and then he was punished for my sins. He died and he rose again three days later. And so the early church had a similar kind of prayer and they repeated this often as part of their service. It's called the Apostles' Creed. A lot of churches still use that. Uh, and uh, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. The word Catholic there is not Catholic in the sense of denomination. It meant the whole church, all of it. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the everlasting life. And so this was a regular part of the early church's worship service. And like I say, many today still use it. Number 10, a major weakness of American Christianity is that the church is looked at as an organization of sinful people, not as the body and bride of Christ. We uh, tend to do things in extremes. And so one of the things that happened to the church after a number of years is that the church became uh, very, very... Uh, powerful and much of the truth of the word of God became tradition and then the, they began to practice excommunication and the reason that was a scary thing is because if you got excommunicated from the church you got kicked out of heaven and so when the reformation came some things went in the other direction and, and today in most believers minds and eyes the church is a glorified Fred Meyer store it exists for uh, providing services for me, my children, but there's not much level of commitment to it. And, uh, and so, in my opinion, I believe strongly that my commitment to Christ is my commitment to his body. My love for Christ is my love for his bride. And for me to say I love Jesus and don't love his bride uh, is being deceived. To say I'm committed to him and not committed to his body, again, is being deceived. Number 11, the early church, uh, in, in the early church, salvation was a result of believing in Jesus, believing in his godhood, his incarnation, his virgin birth, the totality of his work for us. 
Believing meant to love him with all, our, all your heart and to be committed to following him, serving him, and obeying him. If I go be faster than you get your blanks filled in, just wave your hand there and we can back up. A person's love for Jesus and their commitment to Jesus was demonstrated by their love for and commitment to the church. Salvation apart from devotion to and faithfulness to the church was foreign. I can predict an individual falling away by uh, various uh, signs, things that they begin to do, and the most uh, obvious and the most sure is when they start becoming haphazard in church attendance. When that happens, I know it's simply a matter of time before they fall away totally in their commitment to Christ. Number 12, the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to persuade people to run the race with endurance, and a key was not forsaking gathering together. Not forsaking gathering together. Writing to Jewish Christians, he knew they would understand the emphasis. So I'll read a few verses from the Old Testament in regards to the Sabbath, uh, just so that you get what they knew when he wrote to them in Hebrews chapter 10 and said, don't forsake gathering together. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Deuteronomy 5, 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Exodus 31, therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign... And remember, uh, this was a sign for the Old Covenant, uh, the First Covenant. Every covenant had a sign. Our sign of the New Covenant is communion. The sign for the Old Covenant was the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So we understand that we don't keep the Sabbath like they did in the Old Testament. We're not the nation of Israel. We're the church. But writing to these Jewish individuals... Uh, they had this understanding. So uh, when he writes Hebrews 10, 24, and says, don't forsake gathering together as is the habit of some, uh, they understood what the point was. Colossians 2, 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath day. We can worship on Thursday if we want. We can worship on, is this Wednesday? Yeah, we can worship on Wednesday. Uh, but the key is that we would gather faithfully, regularly with our church family, encourage one another, uh, edify one another, give grace to each other by the words that we speak. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So Paul's taking a special offering, and so he said the first day of every week, 
uh, set aside some money that you make, save it for when I come. And so the first day of the week became the day that the church, uh, as it started, uh, gathered in honor of the resurrection of Christ. But if we want to do it on Wednesday, we can. There's no command uh, in the New Testament and under the New Covenant that we take any one day. But there is this emphasis on gathering faithfully. Galatians 4, 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Hebrews seven twelve. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also, making the point we don't keep the Sabbath. Micah two twelve. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. And the point there is gathering together. Psalms 50, uh, uh, chapter 50, verse 5, Gather my godly ones. Isaiah 40, verse 11, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Isaiah 43, 5, Do not fear, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, gather you from the west. I will gather you. And then Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who uh, promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I won't read the rest of that. Um, but the point there is, don't fall away, don't fall away, endure to the end, cross the finish line, and a basic key is gather together with your church family and encourage one another, uh, and you will faithfully finish the race, and those that you encourage will as well. Amen. <laughs>